On this podcast, we discuss medical diagnoses and procedures. All of the guests express their own opinions. You should always seek medical advice from a trained and credentialed professional when making decisions about your own health. Welcome to the Sleep Apnea Stories podcast. I'm Emma Cooksey, and I've been coping with sleep apnea since childhood. I didn't know anyone in my life with a sleep disorder, so I decided to start this podcast. I'm here to build community and provide a platform for people with sleep apnea to tell their stories. Together, we can shatter stereotypes and raise awareness. We'll be exploring all sorts of treatment options and lifestyle choices to help you live your best life with sleep apnea. This is Sleep Apnea Stories, and I'm so glad you're here. Hey everyone, it's Emma Cooksey here, and I'm your host. Today's episode is a really personal story from Ernestine Key, whose husband Frederick Key passed away in September 2018. I think that it just takes enormous courage to to speak about, you know, like really tragic and personal things that have happened in your life. But Ernestine's willing to put the story out there to help other people. And so I just wanted to say a huge thank you to Ernestine for trusting me to um, give her the opportunity to tell the story. Um, I think oftentimes people don't realize that there are so many um, health conditions that run along with sleep apnea. And very often people who have strokes have had a lot of symptoms of undiagnosed sleep apnea, as Frederick did. Um, and the sleep apnea is just missed and not treated. And, and they end up having a stroke. And then after the stroke, they realize that sleep apnea was part of the picture. So I really hope um, people will hear this story. And we've done a good job at really celebrating Frederick's life as well as talking about um, what happened medically with him. He sounds like a really wonderful husband and father, and I'm sad I didn't get to meet him. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Ernestine Key. Yeah. So Ernestine, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. And do you want to start with just where you are in the world for people listening? Yes, I am currently in Overland Park, Kansas. Um, originally from Chicago, born and raised there, spent the last few years in Texas, but have made my way back to the Midwest. And I've been in Kansas for about four or five months now. So I thought maybe we could just start with you telling us a little bit about your husband, Freddie, and who he was, what he liked, you know, like how you guys met, just all of that. Yeah. So Fred, um, my, my late husband's name was Frederick Key, um, and he was from Chicago. Well, he grew up in Chicago. He was born in St. Louis and grew up in Chicago. We met, um, yeah, uh, mm, he was a great guy. He, um, he was a musician. 
by trade. So he got, um, he went to Columbia College in Chicago and got a degree in vocal performance and fell in love with being a bass player. So he was played the upright bass. He was a jazz musician and played around the city in Chicago. And um, so I just have to ask you, uh, what's your feeling about jazz? Because my dad is now retired and his love is jazz and he's a jazz pianist and he's in a band and my mom, <laughs> God love her kind of like put up with the jazz but I don't think it was her first love <laughs> so what was your feeling about the jazz and the I concert? liked it okay. I liked it I was I played the saxophone when I was in sixth grade and so when we met and when we met he sang to me I met him at a, a friend's party uh, it was like a graduation party and he started singing and then he sang this Brian McKnight love song and I thought so good he can really sing and then he asked me out and we started dating um and then but once we were married um his music career um became something that I found myself almost being his groupie like so he would go around to different gigs and things and I would just be his wife I was just there with him all the time yeah. supporting and he had this giant bass and he played around the city and it was really fun and really nice um it brought him joy and even it's it's been a special joy or it was a special joy even after he um got sick so when he had a stroke um he had a massive stroke that um he survived for five more years before he passed away but after his stroke he, um, for a while, he had a trach in his throat. Okay. He couldn't eat on his own for a while. He had a feeding tube. And then uh, he had to relearn how to walk and go through therapy and things like that. So as he was recovering, one of the things, one of the things that he also lost was his capacity to like move his hands and his dexterity mm. and that. And so it was picking up that base again, encouraging him to just try um, okay. that he could practice getting more um, dexterity in his hands and it brought him back to life in a couple of ways but that was That's one wonderful. of the ways so he he was a great musician he loved playing the bass he loved singing um, he loved being a dad we had when he had his stroke our daughter was two almost two maybe um, and so even before he got sick, um, he spent lots of time with our daughter, Lena. He would take her out to fly kites and he would teach her how to ride a bike as she got a little older and he was a great dad and he was a great husband. Like Even before he got sick, we found ourselves dating more as a couple, as a married couple than we were as a couple before we got married because we wow. live together how do, now. How do you do that? <laughs> it was so nice because yeah, once we got really married, nice. we were living together. So now we were like, oh, we can just go out all the time. Yeah. So we go to the movies and go out to dinner and make things at home. And we just found ourselves dating more and like- We need to do more of that. I'm going to yeah, go and yeah. tell my husband. It was really nice. <laughs> and so as a result, we like, pro we postponed parenthood because we were enjoying- yeah. Just and being um, a married couple for, yeah. for quite a while. 
So we were late parents. We were married for like nine years before we um, had our daughter. I think that sounds like a great idea. Yeah, <laughs> no complaints. The wife yeah. was good and he was a good guy. And he, I'm going to transition into some of the sleep apnea stuff and say when we first married, I did notice right away he was a snorer. Um, so that's what I was going to ask. So, mm-hmm. so was mm-hmm. there... I know it's really easy in retrospect, right? After yeah. the fact to kind of notice yeah. things. But so you noticed that he was a snorer. Absolutely. And, and so was your husband like, ooh, let me go to the doctor and talk to them all about my story? Absolutely not. <laughs> so I'll start by I saying. I don't think I've ever, like in the whole process of doing this, I feel like so many wives and partners reach out to me going, how do I get? my husband yes. to go to the doctor oh my god men yeah. especially black men they have this thing about why do I have to go to a doctor anyway I'll be fine yeah um I will say just in my family there I've the culture of snoring did not seem abnormal so my mom was a snorer my sister is a snorer um so the culture of snoring just just seem like, oh, that's just something you do or you don't Yeah, so tell me about that because um, I interviewed Dr. Dana Johnson, who I'm not sure if you're familiar with her, but she does amazing research into disparities in health and and especially with sleep apnea in the Mm -hmm. Black community, particularly compared, Mm -hmm. you know, and she was talking about how there's a definite cultural difference where people think that snoring is almost like a sign that you had a really good deep sleep yes right so was that going on absolutely absolutely yeah so you just assume you you don't think that there's something worth checking out as a result of a person snoring you you almost just think it's an annoyance you try to hope to go to sleep before them maybe right Um, as the person sharing the bed with them that's a lot to deal with yes and I do think that that's something kind of powerful for spouses and partners to pay attention to, because on some level, we're the first line of, um, we're the first ones that can can offer support. So yeah. This podcast is sponsored by Mute. Regardless of whether you have sleep apnea, use a CPAP machine, or just deal with allergies and congestion, you deserve a good night's sleep. Mute is here to help make that happen. A nasal dilator made from ultra-soft medical-grade polymers, Mute gently holds your nasal airways open, which increases airflow by an average of 38%. And that 38% improvement means more breathing, less snoring, and better sleep for you and your partner, or kids, or dog. The quality sleep your body wants and needs is well within reach. Breathe more, snore less, sleep better with Mute's comfortable and customizable fit. My late husband, who was sleeping, didn't know that he was gasping for air in his sleep. He knew he was snoring because I would tell him, but he didn't realize 
when they're asleep, they don't know what's happening to them. So and so with the of, with the gasping, is that something you noticed as well? Or or you just mainly notice the snoring because that would wake you up? I did notice a little gasping, but I did not recognize it as right. something abnormal. I just thought it was a deeper kind of snore. Right. Um I hadn't heard a snore like that before, but I just assumed it was just something new. Um mm-hmm. He was a man or something. I don't know. I just didn't think about it much. Um, so, so I do encourage spouses to pay attention, mm-hmm. um, pay attention and say something and offer for their partner to just check it out. And I yeah. think that's the piece we miss a lot, the diagnosis piece, because we go undiagnosed for so long, um, because it's normalized as mm-hmm. just snoring. And as it gets, and the longer that you are undiagnosed, the more possibility or opportunity exists for other conditions to be developed as a result of. Like stroke or heart attack or, yeah. Exactly, exactly. And so um, around the time of the stroke, um, was there any talk of tests, like doing a sleep study? Did he, nobody, like the doctors weren't, asking like you know how does he sleep and all of this kind of stuff because that really surprises me that that's not more of a normal standard thing to ask right correct yes and that's another piece that's discouraging I don't know how it um I don't know how it goes just in terms of when any person has a stroke what are the normal questions or things that get asked but sleep apnea was absolutely not one of the first second or even third things that got asked Hmm. it wasn't until after he got treated um because it was such a massive stroke and then after they started doing a little more research and studying to determine that oh this is where the the blood clot started oh it probably came as a result of oh maybe we should check for so it it came down the line of oh we might want to check for that and so how far do you remember I know it's really difficult to remember Mm -hmm. all this stuff when it happens but um how long after his stroke was that like it was Mm -hmm. a significant time it was a significant time at least a month um after um because he was because his stroke was so severe Mm -hmm. he was hospitalized for several months um and so um he was so much for you to cope with I can't even like it's a lot it was a lot it was a lot um I think it was I think what made it feel like more or or a lot and maybe what I don't know what part of some of the things that made it feel like a lot was one he was a relatively healthy man he before the stroke he exercised he rode his bicycle up and down the lakefront all the time. He was an active father and and, um, husband. Like we had no reason to believe he wasn't healthy in a general way. Yeah. And then then when it happened, we had a relatively young family when he did um, get sick. So not only is now my husband, who's not even 50 years old in the hospital for a stroke, but we also have this toddler who's not even two years old yeah um, that we have to look after yeah so so I had those two pieces that were sitting in front of me at the same time and it was it did make it challenging and I give 
all the glory to God for like just protecting me and supporting me through that time. I had a wonderful family who just came and supported me. Um, and his family was super supportive. So mm-hmm. just had, I was fortunate to be able to come through on the other side and be okay. And he was too, like he survived the stroke. Mm-hmm. Like every, everyone doesn't survive a stroke and he did um, survive for five more years. Um, so we were grateful for those for that time. And so when they started asking questions about sleep apnea, did they then, so this is after his stroke, did they then do a sleep study and and diagnose him and all of that? Can you tell us a little yeah. bit about that? Yes. Yeah. So it was, it wasn't until he was like fully out of the hospital and kind of in recovery mode, outpatient recovery mode, that they then felt like we can do a sleep study. So they didn't do it while he was hospitalized, um, trying to recover from the stroke itself. When they did the sleep study, oh, let me back up. When they asked him to do the sleep study, he refused it. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah. um, The emotional components that go with acknowledging that you might have a condition that there is no cure for. Yeah. Acknowledging that you might have a condition that the treatment for is not sexy. It is not pleasant. There's nothing nice about sleeping with this giant mask on your face. Mm -hmm. he wasn't. He, he didn't want open. any part of that. Yes. <laughs> so he wasn't open to even exploring it for mm-hmm. a little. Um, so that took a bit of um, convincing. Um, and he did go. It, it didn't take a long time to convince, but it absolutely took a lot of energy. I'll say. So you were the one having to say, this is the best thing to do for your health. Yep. Got to do yep, it. Yep. Mm-hmm. Also, too, because he had spent so much time in the hospital, the last thing he wanted to do was spend the night yeah. in a, another facility doing something yeah. like this. So um, so that's another piece that I think is, is really important in advocacy around sleep apnea is how can we test for it in ways that aren't um, yeah. so cumbersome? Like yeah. people don't want to spend the night in this thing. Is there a way to do it in their own home? Are there easier methods of tracking and yeah figuring it out and I think honestly we're we're starting to see that like with with some newer technologies and some home sleep so it just it's just the whole uh most sleep specialists want as much data as possible you know so they're like oh go into the the clinic and get this whole thing but Mm -hmm. I, I think that you're right for a lot particularly of stubborn men um I think that if there were something a lot like a home study that's just less cumbersome and would you know maybe suit them better but yeah that's a really important point for people listening to go and get the study done and then what did that show so it uh, it showed oh let me back up one more time on that as well because primary care physicians aren't always thinking about oh, let me give a recommendation for you to do this. So yeah. had when he had a stroke, he was in a research hospital that um, was really beneficial to his recovery, but his primary care physician was not associated with that hospital. So primary care physician was not necessarily um, uh, 
was not necessarily um, thinking about or encouraging right away to write a recommendation or referral for that. Um, yeah, I think so often it's about people really getting the information themselves and advocating for themselves in healthcare yeah. settings. Um, I know that just, you know, GPs and, you know, primary care physicians, I feel like they're trying to do so much and hardly any time. And a lot of them don't think mm -hmm. sleep apnea, you know, and, and certainly for me, like it took more than a decade to get a diagnosis for me. And I went to so many doctors and said, I'm tired and sleepy all day, even when I have an eight hour night sleep, like, you know, that's not normal. And, and I really just didn't get anywhere. Um, so yeah, I think some of it is people kind of learning what the symptoms of sleep apnea are and mm -hmm. just saying that could be me and going and saying, Hey, I really would yeah. like to be, you know, referred for a sleep study. I have all of these symptoms. Yeah, and yep. doing it that way, you know, hopefully, you know, yep. the the healthcare professionals will learn more about sleep apnea. But I think in the meantime, people can really just, you know, take it into their own hands and yeah, and ask for those tests. Yeah, and I think that's part of the challenge too. Like, had yeah. we not asked, the PCP would not have yes recommended it automatically, and we only asked because he came out of a stroke and a research hospital that said, hmm, yeah. That we might need to consider that. Yeah. Um, so it just takes more steps to get to it, which mm -hmm. makes it, um, you know, which makes it harder for folks. Which, which especially it. when you have people that don't even want to go for the test in the <laughs> first place. Yes. It's like you need to make it as easy as possible, not exactly. more difficult, you know. Exactly. Remove some of those barriers for yeah. sure. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you listen to the podcast, you know how many of the guests have dealt with mental health challenges along with sleep apnea. I have struggled with anxiety and depression for years and have found therapy so helpful in my journey. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can start communicating in under 48 hours. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional therapy done securely online. The service is available for clients worldwide. You can log into your account anytime and send a message to your therapist. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions. So you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room as with traditional therapy. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they make it easy and free to change therapists if needed. Visit betterhelp.com slash Emma. That's betterhelp.com slash Emma and join the over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. There's a special offer for Sleep Apnea Stories listeners. Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash Emma.
And uh, so he had the sleep apnea. He mm-hmm. had the um, yeah. polysomnogram. Like he went and actually had all the electrodes on his head and everything. Yes, exactly. Okay. He spent the night and had that. And then what did that say? That said that he had some, it wasn't mild. Like it was some kind of significant thing going on. Um, so that was, I don't know, that was a little discouraging for me because I, I halfway felt like just from a um, caregiver perspective, because that's what I became after his stroke. Yeah. Um, I, f- I felt like I had like missed something because if it was significant, how did it, how did I miss that? That's just. But then also you're surrounded by all of these healthcare professionals who, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like he's been in hospital like that mm-hmm. whole time. So mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. So that wasn't, um, it wasn't the best news. And it also didn't offer many options for um, treatment. Right. So the best treatment was the CPAP, um, which how, I- How did, did he feel about that? Um, he wasn't really feeling it. <laughs> he, he wasn't, yeah. So it was a combination. So at that time, because he was still recovering from the stroke, he had- it was new for him to now be taking a whole lot of meds. So that had changed his, his our lives. Um, his mobility and his way of life was so different now post-stroke. Mm-hmm. Um, so that had had an impact as well. So the CPAP wasn't like the worst thing compared to all this other stuff, yeah. but it was just one more thing to add on that also wasn't, um intuitive to use like it's not you know the pills you just read it and take it or what oh there's a definite learning curve with CPAP right yes and Mm -hmm. so there was a bit of anxiety I think on both of our parts in terms of can we will we use it right we don't want to mess it up the potential of germs and all that other stuff and and we still got this little kid running around our crib and so yeah how are we gonna navigate all of this um so we didn't he wasn't like horrified by it but it was just felt like uh here goes another thing I guess okay here we go um so he um but he was actually relatively decent about how do I make sure I clean it regularly make sure I'm doing as much as I can like when they taught us how to use it we both were really attentive and everything Mm -hmm. and he was good with it when we maybe maybe after the first month of using it I'll say it started feeling a little bit of um I don't know fatigue is the right word but just annoyance maybe yeah to have to always do it all the time have to remember even when he's taking a nap that this could be a matter of life and death um I think that's so common. I mean, um, I just interviewed somebody who um, pretty much did okay for about six months. And then she just was like, oh, it just became less and less that she would use it. And then it just got so annoying that she just abandoned it completely, you know? So I think that that's a pretty common experience. Yeah. It's also, it's also challenging as a, when you're in a relationship um <laughs> really challenging it's just not sexy it's not cute what are we supposed to do with this thing uh, it's in the way so 
Um, yes. It's like, a real thing. Yes. Yeah. It absolutely impacts intimacy, mm-hmm. which impacts relationships. Um, and it's something that we don't really talk about a lot right. in our society or culture or whatever. But, yeah. um, but, but I think it, we have to talk about it more because I feel like if we don't talk about what some of the problems with CPAP are, mm-hmm. then I feel like, you know, doctors are looking just at data mm-hmm. and there's no doubt, like it's super helpful for people and all of that, but you have to see how it fits into people's lives to understand yeah. why people, a lot of people aren't compliant or, you know, yeah. don't use it for, for all the time that they're asleep. So yeah, yeah, very true. I've had conversations with other caregivers just about, um, the challenges that it exists for, when you're a caregiver of a partner um, or spouse, that it, the impact on that relationship is, Mm -hmm. it's, um, hmm, it's something for the person who is physically ill as well as the caregiver. So the person who's physically ill, in my conversations with my late husband, he would, feel guilty and bad that he couldn't be the partner that he used to be um that he couldn't and for um, what you're having to do of course you want to help and support him and do all the stuff but I would imagine in that situation you would feel like oh my wife's having to do all this extra stuff you know to take care of me and yes exactly and so part of my responsibility um, which I signed up for when I married him, but part of my responsibility is making sure that he puts it on all the time, making sure yeah. that he has it right, making sure that he cleans it. Um, while that was his CPAP, it was partly my responsibility too. And so yeah. I think- Did that cause was, did that cause friction? Because he doesn't really want to use it all the time and you're having to like and you're yeah. not his mom. <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah. I don't know if I would call it friction. Um, it did. Uh, I think when he came home from the hospital, it was just clear that I needed to do more and to make sure that he was healthy or getting healthier. And so it's making sure his pills are laid out. It's cleaning the area where the feeding tube is. It's making sure the CPAP like it's it's just all that stuff that yeah. is just part of the responsibility and i think there were may have been times i, I know there were times when they when he had guilt feelings um about not being able to care for himself the way he used to mm-hmm. um but i think um i think he did his best um i think he did his best he lived five more years when yeah. you know which i think a lot of that was a will to live because um, yeah. it was uncomfortable. I, I saw the discomfort in his face. Um, uh, I know he was uncomfortable for a good period mm-hmm. of that. Um, and I'm grateful that we had those last five years that our daughter got to know her dad, yeah. um, spend time with him, um, and that he got to, I think his story or his his, his life or this part of his life um, is a is a testament to how if if there is a little more care put into 
diagnosis if there is a little more care put into different ways to treat this condition. Yes. If there's a little more care put into routines um, and possibly even mental health as well. I, mm -hmm. I do believe when he when he left this earth, it was because he was ready to go um, because of fatigue of yeah. the conditions. Of all that he was um, having to cope with. Yeah, yes. it's a lot. And I have yes. found like the more people that I interview around sleep apnea, I just am astonished by I thought I was the only person with anxiety and depression dealing with this mm -hmm. and it turns out that the number of people I've interviewed who don't deal with some sort of mental health effect is hardly any people I think there's yeah. from one person and he's so he was like 19 and got diagnosed like right that year when he started having symptoms and he seemed fine but like everybody else like especially people who have gone a long time before getting the diagnosis, you know, mm -hmm. it just, it, it's huge. Like it's a huge mental health um, factor. Awesome. So after your husband passed, you got involved with the American Sleep Apnea Association and have been raising awareness all around sleep apnea. Um, so tell me a little bit about the decision to do that, because I think so many of us would have just gone through this traumatic you know time and mm -hmm. just been all done with it but it's amazing that you're then you know using your voice to help spread awareness so tell me a little bit about the decision to to start speaking about the story yeah so um so i think the the biggest motivator is our daughter um it's also a desire to improve the quality of life for other people, for sure. Mm -hmm. um, when he passed, I wanted our daughter to understand that death is a part of life, it's a cycle, um, and that his, he, he could have lived longer if conditions were different. And so if we can help other people with similar conditions, live yeah. longer, better quality lives, then that is something that we should try to do. So she was a Girl Scout. Um, and at the time I was also working for a foundation. And so I was able to start a, a fund to um, be able to give money to the American Sleep Apnea Association. But I also reached out to them just to better understand what they were doing to, you know, increase screening and diagnosis, mm -hmm. increase treatment, increase quality, all those things. Um, and I was excited by some of the things that they were doing to the point of um, joining their board and figuring out how I can um, provide some leadership and um, support to their vision as well, which I think is really powerful so and, wonderful yeah so yeah. that's been helpful and then and then I wanted to I mean the, the biggest piece is really to make sure our daughter understands that we can advocate for people and help people who we don't even know who yeah. might have things in common with people that we know and love mm -hmm. so if we couldn't help the people we know and love or we help them as much as we could how can yeah. we help others um, which is wonderful. Not, 
Yeah. So that was really the motivator. And it still is. Um, yeah. We still give an annual gift. Still involved in the in the organization. Um, yeah. So we do what we can in, in those ways. Well, I think what you're doing is wonderful. And I just want to say a really big thank you for joining me and sharing a bit of Freddie's story. And um, I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. This has been awesome to just talk to you. And hopefully okay. we're reaching more people and making a difference. Thanks so much for listening. I love hearing from you. If you'd like to be featured in an upcoming episode, please email me at sleepapneastories at gmail.com. That's also the place to get in touch if you just want to say hi or ask a question. Alternatively, you can always reach me on Instagram. My handle there is at sleepapneastories. If you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen. This really helps a wider audience to find the episodes and I really appreciate it.